and welcome to With the First Link, the podcast that hopes to make our future as bright and as just as the one that we see in Star Trek The Next Generation. And we think that one way to do that is to recap and discuss the entire series one episode at a time, doing our best to look at the whole series through an anti-oppression, anti-racist lens. I'm Ruthie Kaupersamoshi. And I'm Matthew Simone, and today we'll be talking about justice. This episode was written by Worley Thorne and John D.F. Black and directed by James L. Conway. It first aired on November 7th, 1987. Actually, I'm going to check something because I had notes on this episode and those are different people than I wrote down. Oh, yes, because John D.F. Black used a different name. Oh, okay, cool. Um, All right, we'll we'll roll with that. Yeah. Is that because he was ashamed of this episode? Because it it (laughs) bore very little resemblance to what he had actually written. Actually written? Okay, (laughs) well, all right, fine. Cool, all right, go ahead. Yeah. So today's episode includes a character, or maybe more accurately, a group of characters who are considered by the inhabitants of the planet we visit uh, to be God. These characters are actually a sort of interdimensional group of aliens. I thought it might be cool to talk a little bit about the idea of God as an interdimensional alien or as a vessel full of interdimensional aliens. What are your what are your thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I would be, you know, if there is a God out there, I would be disappointed if they weren't an interdimensional alien. Fair enough. If you're going to claim Godhood, which I'm assuming has like omnipotence and omnipresence, omnip- omnipresence, is that right? Omnipresence? That's the word, yeah. Omnipresence, omnipresence yeah. yeah. That you would have to be interdimensional, wouldn't you? Because that's that's where the rest of reality is. It's out there in other dimensions. No, at least that's what sci-fi always taught me. So I'm like not a religious person at all. I don't have a whole lot of thoughts on God, but I try very hard to be welcoming of various beliefs as long as they aren't rooted in the oppression of a group or multiple groups of people or in, you know, the superiority of one group over another group. Aside from that, I like to be inclusive of different beliefs. And I wonder if this idea of God as an alien in any way diminishes like the spirituality or the spiritual significance of such a being. If the worship of your God or of God needs to requires that that being has no limitations like of of life as we know it because i'm assuming that if they're alien there's some kind of living creature or unless they've assumed the technological state of being then then maybe it does diminish the spirituality i don't know yeah we get the first serious discussion around the prime directive in this episode you know at what point does the thoughts around god and being gods inform that directive like not wanting to interfere with the society assuming that you have that much power or want to wield power in that way which we're not sure what this entity's intentions are toward the society. It, it looks like they've definitely done a lot of interference. Yes, they have, and they're very protective. But once you have taken on that role of interfering and showing like a certain kind of superiority, I guess, um, shown by the this one character, Rivon's reaction to seeing God, once you have taken on that role, what kind of responsibility are you then taking on? And then how does that impact the laws of the society? So like one of the the questions that you posed here was, and I'm talking beforehand, was about the very title of the show, Justice. Like what do we think justice really is, right? And we talk about that in our opening script for each episode, that we want to make the future look as bright and as just as the one that we see in Star Trek The Next Generation. But how much of our sense of justice is informed by like Judeo-Christian values? And is that everyone's sense of justice? I was thinking about that, about what what is justice because, or I can think of like what a just society might look like. So it looks like people having access to what they need. It looks like their ideas of like fairness. But but when I think about like what is justice, especially in, as this episode explores, like in response to a crime or a transgression, that's harder. And certainly... What I where I try to lean is towards restorative justice, which is about addressing the harm that has been caused and repairing the damage that has been caused rather than revenge or punishment or retribution. But I also feel as a human being, sometimes when someone wrongs me, I'm really angry and it's <laughs> I don't necessarily care about repairing the relationship. I'm mad and I want them to feel as bad as I feel. I generally don't act on that because 
although I am human, I do have some self-control. And I think that that's really important. But I understand the impulse to have, if you suffer, then someone else should suffer just as much. For me lately, the concept of justice that's come up in my brain and heart and soul has been of challenging the fairness of authority and power. We're seeing that happen a lot right now in terms of like uh, movements to defund the police. And because it seems that what's defined as being a crime or an offense in our society right Mm -hmm. now seems to be transgressions, not necessarily against one another, but against greater power about property and about class. It's not so much like the crimes that we're we're inflicting upon one another, the infringements upon each other's humanity. It's infringements upon that power. And that's, I don't think that yeah. that's justice Property anymore. In fact, and- it's, I think it becomes really scary when it becomes literally illegal to challenge power or when people become afraid to challenge power, however that might manifest in a life, maybe power against a company, like as a whistleblower, or power against a state, yeah. maybe also as a whistleblower, depending on how the state is infringing upon people's rights, or maybe power against like a former employer, or people right now who are coming forward about sexual assaults that have happened against them. And you know, like, the it's seeking justice in that case. And how is the legal system failing them or supporting them in those situations? Yeah, and it's interesting also, like, sexual assault, or I think any kind of assault, my legal knowledge is very limited. So I could be saying some things that are wrong, but I know that at least some of what I'm saying is true. So take that as you will. In a lot of cases where a person has been physically harmed by another person, at least in like the Canadian or certainly the Ontario justice system, if someone hurts me in court, it's not me against that person. It's the crown. Like that is... Uh, that then becomes basically like an assault against the queen. So it's not about me, the person who was directly impacted by the assault. It's about the state or the crown versus the person who did the assault. And I'm just a witness. Then what's the purpose of justice? It's certainly not restorative in that sense, right? It's not about repairing the harm that was done. If the person is found guilty, they go to jail that doesn't do anything for the person who was harmed. I mean, maybe it does for some, but... Or they're executed. Yeah, or they're executed in places where we've got capital punishment. That doesn't fix the problem. Maybe to some people, like, that does feel like justice is served, but it doesn't actually solve the hurt that was done. Meanwhile, in, like, civil court cases, that's often about, like, money. And you can argue whether money can fix a problem or not. But I would say in a capitalist society, money could go a long way to fixing certain problems. Which is why it's sought so often, I think, is in forms of reparations. Yeah. Especially if you're living in a place where you've been physically harmed and your medical care expenses are not covered by the state. For sure. Yes, there there it is 100% (laughs) true. But even like in a place where your medical expenses are covered by the state, if you're not able to work because you are in distress because of the harm that you have suffered, then maybe you get some disability payments. Those tend not to be enough to cover living expenses. Mm -hmm. Then money is also very necessary. So in some ways, I almost feel like civil cases are closer to a restorative justice model than justice cases. We used a restorative justice model, or we used to call it like RJ, yeah. that was our lingo yeah, yeah. around residence life. Uh, so when I used to be a residence life coordinator up at Simon Fraser University, if we had an issue between residents and one of them felt like they were a harmed party and came forward, we would try to use a restorative model. So we would see if everyone involved was willing to participate in the process. I meant like sitting down, talking about the harm that was done, discussing ways that there could be reparations done to that harm rather than like a punitive measure yeah. or like eviction or whatever. So we turned it into like a learning opportunity, yeah. a chance for people to reconcile and grow and It definitely took a lot more work on our part from like an administrative standpoint, but I felt like it was a lot more rewarding than just like giving someone like an arbitrary sanction or removing them from the community. Yeah, absolutely. I think it it is a lot more work up front. It can be less work in the long run because then I think someone in that sort of position is less likely to repeat that kind of behavior. There are still models like this that are applied at a nationwide level. We have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was run in South Africa at like the end of apartheid. You have we had one run in, in Canada, Canada as well. I don't know if it's fair to say what the outcome of that process in Canada has been yet. I, I think there's, there's still a lot, lot of work left of work, to do. Yeah. 
and whether or not those harms are still being perpetuated against people and never really stopped. But there have been attempts to exercise that process on, on large scale. I also think it's important to mention that when we talk about restorative justice practices, many of them come from various uh, First Nations, Métis, Inuit communities around what we now call Canada. There, it's, a, it's a practice that is, if not directly taken from, certainly influenced, from, influenced by a lot of Indigenous groups, communities, nations. And we should definitely give that credit. We'll see none of that in this episode. I haven't seen this episode in a long time. When I watched it, I was like, I got something out of this. It's actually my favorite episode of this season so far. <laughs> However, because of the discussion that it like generated, if I were just watching this episode on my own, I'd probably be like, eh. but in sitting down and writing notes in anticipation of the podcast, I was like, there's actually a lot more meat here than in other episodes to really talk about and dig into. I agree. Totally. It was... I would say it's a bit sloppily executed, but it I think it generated a lot more for me to think about than certainly some other episodes have this season. I very much remember this episode from my childhood. I must have seen it as a rerun. I loved Wesley Crusher as a kid. He was my first celebrity yeah, crush. I like Wesley too. I thought yeah. he was great. So I'm, that might be why it stuck so much to me. I feel like I... I, I'm not a big fan of like nicely manicured gardens, and I wonder if this episode is part of that. <laughs> so we just hated gardens? Just, well, no, like, like uh, I like gardens, but when they're like so perfect and it's like, don't walk on my garden, you're going to ruin my pretty flowers. I right, feel yeah, like yeah, yeah, this is yeah. part of it because like. This was someone like getting back at their parents. Yeah. This is what you made me feel as a kid. Yeah, like, like I want to just garden, like step on new plants. I don't care if they're covered in glass. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, yeah. I think we should dig into that a yeah. little bit. Yeah, well, it's this point. episode. It's no, it's not quite. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like so, I just I I feel like I have I have a very strong feeling about those like white those little white fences and like when I see things like that, it always evokes memories of this episode. Oh, interesting. I wonder if maybe like maybe yeah maybe there's more there's something deeper there than I thought there was. You know, we talked about transgressions against class. Yeah. Maybe this is like that. This is a model of like transgression against the, the white picket fence yeah. in that society. And I did, I did not think of that. We yeah. might be giving the episode more credit than I... Well, I, I definitely have thoughts about... Well, well, we'll get to them. I will say my thoughts. Okay, so in this episode, while accompanying an away team on a mission to investigate an Eden-like planet, Wesley Crusher commits a crime and is sentenced... To death. Oh my goodness. Will he survive? They've just completed a successful colonization of a planet within a star cluster. The episode starts off with them finding a new M-class planet that is unusually lovely, (laughs) says Picard. And they've already started interacting with the people on this planet. He says that they are almost identical to us. And I figured... That might be because we've blown the costume budget in the previous episode. Yeah, we, I mean, they the barely had any the fabric <laughs> left for costumes in this episode. <laughs> Literally, they're wearing nothing. They're like, it's we like have five loincloth. shirts and three pairs of pants. Can we Let's clothe cut them a up whole for everybody. group of people with just that? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's exactly what happened. Like, no prosthetics, no <laughs> giant robes. No. They look like humans, and they yeah. are wearing nothing. Yeah. Riker enters the bridge, and he's got this giant smirk on <laughs> his face. He's so happy. He's so happy. And Crusher says it's a chance for them to all get fresh air. Yeah. Yar has filed a report on the culture. Jordy says that they make love at the drop of a hat. You know, Yar answers, you know, any hat. Feel- but basically she's done studies on them yeah. and that they there's their laws are common sense, she says. The way she said it makes me think she was just like dropping different kinds of hats to see how many of them ended up in sex. They insinuate that she has gotten involved yes. with at least one of the characters yes. on the planet. Yeah. She says they've had like common sense laws. Everything seems normal. I I guess that means she knows that you're not supposed to step on new plants. Well, it looks like they're not aware of that until later. Like it's something that, that wasn't stated, which that's one of the weaknesses yeah, I thought of the episode is like how much they actually know. So they've they've done some studying, but it, it doesn't really make sense mm-hmm. why they haven't told them something like this. Yeah. So that part was a bit it lazy a bit writing. Sloppy, yeah. I, the only issue that they've got is data has noticed something off the starboard bow. It's like a they, they determine it's a glitch in the system. Picard decides to send down a small away team. He says that he wants Wesley Crusher to join this away team. So they beam down to the planet. They're in some kind of, I think this is a real botanical garden somewhere in Los Angeles. 
um, that they're filming the set at. And I'm pretty sure the set is also used for Starfleet Academy mm, uh, later on because the buildings look look recognizable. But it, it makes sense then in this case if it's about gardens and stuff because I think that's, that's really what it all is. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, all the Edo look basically exactly the same. Blonde, white. Yeah, they're all white. They're all blonde. They're basically this like Aryan society. And yeah. I think it makes a really could say interesting you could also say super problematic comparison to code of honor where we've got this planet of all black people and with the Edo, when the enterprise comes up against their traditions the Edo are very they're innocent in this they're just children they don't know any better as opposed to in right. code of honor where there's more of a sense of like these black aliens are, they are more responsible. We can't expect the Edo, these white aliens, to be responsible for for not, you know, for... I mean, there is there's definitely a conversation about the prime directive in both of them and the need to be delicate. But in Code of Honor, the need to be delicate is more wrapped up with, well, they've got this vaccine that we need. In the injustice, the need to be delicate is more like, well, the prime directive, we can't mess up this group of people who were just trying to live their best life. And it, to me, it really brings to mind how we treat a black person who is accused of committing a crime, whether they commit it or not, as opposed to a white person who's accused of committing a crime. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that comparison between both episodes, but it, it makes sense. I mean, you have an episode previously in the season that is primarily all black actors, and then this one is all white blonde actors. And how do we draw distinctions in terms of our sense of justice between those two societies? And we're seeing that play out now in our own society. Absolutely. There are a million examples. The one that comes to mind is like Brock Turner, the white guy who assaulted. There was like video evidence of him assaulting a girl and the a lot of the justification for letting him off easy was like, well, he's got so much potential. And I feel like there's a similar thing with this episode that it's like these people, well, they've got so much potential. We don't want to we don't want to mess up their wonderful society that works so well for them. Some of the commentary that came around when George Floyd died was to talk about his criminal past. Right. Rather than say, well, like there were no discussions. So what about his his great potential future? Yeah. It should be no surprise to anyone that racism goes back way farther than the late 80s. But these conversations that we're having now were present in people's unconscious bias. Thinking about how casting must have gone or how the decision must have been made to cast all these people as like white, blonde, incredibly buff people. This idea of like, you know, well, what does innocence look like to us? And innocence is often equated with whiteness. And that's why, it, and that I think is, is an intentional choice to play up the fact when they first get there that the society is benign. Yes. It isn't dangerous. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being here. Yeah. Uh, there's no threat. Uh, although they play on that. They but do. But certainly that's, that's it, they're trying to set that up in the beginning yeah. for the audience. Yeah. They talk about health and happiness. <laughs> that's how they greet each other. Health and happiness. Troy seems a wee concerned slash maybe jealous. She looked a little bit jealous when, the, what's her name, Rivan hugged Riker, but she yeah. also didn't look happy when Leator hugged her. I feel like she's yeah. just not feeling this group of people a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, that that could be the case. She does say, though, all she senses from them is a healthy sensuality, yeah. mainly friendship and happiness. Yes, yeah. but, no, but not necessarily great boundaries. <laughs> no, not great boundaries. <laughs> Funny having Worf there is sort of a contrast to what's going on. She's like, he likes nice it. Nice planet. <laughs> yeah, he gets a nice big hug from a pretty lady. You know, and Wesley's down there. And so there's some younger uh, Edos that are trying to interact with him. And he's like, I, they say to him, like, I don't know your custom yeah. uh, regarding love. And they want to decide to bring Wesley out to like their council chambers and stuff like that. Yeah. It looks like he's going to be more like exploring and kind of just hanging out with people. Um, and they're like, our rules are simple, and, which they are, except deadly, yeah. as we'll find out. But <laughs> And then they decide they want to run places. And uh, Riker's like, when in Rome, eh, Mr. Worf? Yeah, Worf's like, uh, what? Yeah, he's like, where, sir? Probably doesn't have familiarity with Earth, at least at this point. I guess point, not, so. yeah. Back on the ship, Data can't figure out what's going on. They they get it on screen, and it's it's a weird-looking thing. Like, it's got these two columns and this round thing on top, and then it to me, it always looked like it should have a third column, but instead it has this diagonal line. 
I thought it was cool. It is cool. And it's like, I like it. It's like a base. It's kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of this neat sort of thing. It actually, we won't get into this now, but it does make a second appearance in the show. Oh, does it? It's not the same thing, but, but the, they use the this model yeah. later on in the show. Yeah. I'll remember. As soon as I see it, I'll be like, we'll oh, get yeah, We'll get yeah. to it in another episode. Yeah. I'll be like, see, there, there it was. Is. The there ego ship. Picard asks Jordy to take a real look, like to look. I, I thought it was cool because like they're still playing up the idea that Jordy has like enhanced vision and like can use his visor for stuff. Maybe he, in a way he might even have abilities to see things that even the ship's sensors can't see. So I was like, well, that's kind of cool. They don't really visit this again, but I thought it was kind of a neat idea. Then this like ball of energy floats through the ship. <laughs> Picard's getting so frustrated with their language. He's like, why is everything a something or a whatever? <laughs> a whatever, yeah. I I would imagine though, like if you're traveling through space and encountering stuff that's like weird and new all the time, you'd probably be constantly saying yeah. that. You'd be like, I don't know, it's like a something yeah. or a whatever, I don't know. The, the word I feel like they use most often in situations like this is an anomaly. And that's not any It's better. an anomaly. Yeah, it's anomalous. An anomaly getting anomalous is a reading. or a something. A something, yeah. It's just a fancier word for saying yeah. it. I should actually, I want to use that word more often in day-to-day an life. Anomaly. I'll be like, I don't know. It's an anomaly. This is an anomaly. <laughs> what is that? It's an anomaly. Why'd you, why like, couldn't, why didn't you sleep lunch? last night? Oh, it was an anomaly. <laughs> it was an anomalous sleep. Yeah. Glowing ball like comes in through the wall of the ship and finds its way to the bridge. And it's like a a little sparkly orb. It yells... Yeah, so loud it like shakes the entire ship. It's like state your purpose. State, state the, the purpose. purpose. It's it's upset because I think it's worried that they're gonna leave people on Rubicon three, just like they did on the planet that mm-hmm. they colonized. Picard he explains why they colonized planets, right? He says our species, which again is centering humans, which I think is something that this show does a lot less of later on. It seems that often when we talk about the Federation it's almost kind of like we're trying to say default humanity. Yeah. It's easier to put actors on the show that mm-hmm. look like humans because you need less makeup mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But I wonder if almost that like adds subconsciously yeah. to the thought that like that the Federation we think of mainly as the spread of humans. Fictionally speaking, I don't know. I don't actually know how many worlds are in the Federation. I've heard it, it might be like a thousand or something. But humans would be the minority then of like all the species that are in the it Federation. Like you'd see a lot of others. But there. are they, is it like a thousand worlds or is it like a thousand planets and a bunch of them are human colonies? I don't know. That's yeah. that's a good question. We should look that up. I should know that. I feel like I've failed I, now in my nerd cred. I do not feel like I should know that. <laughs> okay, that's that's okay. I, I'm glad yeah. that you haven't pressured yourself that way to know these things. It's like things. I also don't know how um, many decks there are in the Enterprise. I love Star yeah, Trek. No, I've just, never read the manual. Don't remember off the top of my head. I do have the, the Star Trek technical manual kicking around somewhere and I could look it up. But I feel like knowing how many species or planets are in the Federation is something I should know. But anyways... There's a lot. But so but this ball of energy decides to communicate by connecting to Data's head and it knocks him over and he's unconscious. It's in contact with him. Yes. It's like a way to communicate. Yeah. One other thing I was thinking about, I'm just going to back up for one second because you were talking about the colonization point. I was almost sort of in a way disappointed with Picard's discussion of colonization. He talks about how it's like part of the instinct or drive to protect ourselves by spreading ourselves through the galaxy. I guess it's a, the idea yeah. is that it's like a backup. Yeah. This is a backup of humanity. If Earth gets blown up or other planets or Alpha Centauri or whatever, then at least we're somewhere else. That seems to be our main argument right now for going other places. Mm-hmm. I would like to think that part of it is just to, I mean, I guess he does talk about the challenge of starting a new life and stuff like that. But I I would like to think that's the main reason why we do it. It's not just like so that we survive, but it's about thriving as well. Exploration as opposed to exploration. Yeah, which we I know we touched on that a little bit last episode. He almost talks about it as though like we're a virus. Like (laughs) we need to we need to reproduce and spread so that we can survive. Like, well, and that might be how this entity sees us, right? Yeah. Because in a way, he's he or it or they are feeling defensive of of this planet. They say, do not interfere with my children below, then connects with data and then leads to whatever end. Yeah. We're not sure at this yeah. point. So back on the planet, we, Wesley says that it's really awkward. He's like, so there are some games yeah. that I don't know. Okay, yet. <laughs> so he's hanging out with these other kids. He's met some kids yeah. at the council chambers. The council chambers, by the way, are full of people massaging each other, making out with each other, and doing, like, ballet exercises. Hey, listen, Ruthie, think about how much better 
decisions might be made <laughs> if both sides across the political spectrum could get along that well. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, it's true. There's only one way to settle this, sir. I must kiss you. <laughs> that is the only way. Then the decision will be made. First, you need to give me a massage. Fair enough. Okay, here's how I read this scene with Wesley and these other kids. This girl is like, I want you to show me how to do something. I want you to show me how to play ball. Like, she was not talking about playing ball. That's not what she was talking about. Because if she was talking about playing ball, she would have started with, I want you to show me how to play ball. She wouldn't have said, it's something you can teach me how to do. Yeah, I thought I thought he ha- handled it pretty tactfully. I know that if I were his age and if I were that situation, I would have been a lot more awkward yeah. than even Wesley. But was. I also think like uh, the way she did it, I'm just gonna say it's not cool. Like if you want to play at love or whatever they call it here, if you want to do that with someone, you need to be upfront about your intentions. And I understand why people do it that way because rejection is difficult and most of us are not taught how to handle rejection well as children or or ask those kinds yep, of questions at, very or, well but don't pretend that what you were actually asking was to play baseball Gregor realizes at that point that they're also cut off from the ship mm-hmm. so something something weird is starting to go on uh troy doesn't think it's the edo because you know she's mind scanning yeah, she earlier and they don't seem there's nothing so then they go and talk to yar because they want to let her know and she's not interested in hearing about being cut off from the ship yet because she is more interested about the fact that they have no crime no police no law yeah well she's she's shocked that they have no crime because they have no police and i feel that is actually maybe not that surprising I, I struggled with the episode at this point because at, at this point they also they also tell them that they have these mediators mm-hmm. uh, rather than police. However, there are these punishment zones that seem to like randomly just kind of move around and infringement upon those zones or breaking any of the laws within that zone is punishable by death. Yeah. Given the, the conversation we're having right now about like defunding police and stuff, it's like two very different ideas that get smashed together in one place. Yeah. To come to a similar outcome we're trying to come to right now. I don't know if that's what kind of what you're thinking about. First of all, I think that the presence of police does not make crime go away. We can see that because we have police and we still have crime. So right. having police around does not get rid of crime. The idea is that then you have someone there to deal with crime. But what actually ends up happening is people then end up escalating and you take money away from services that people need, which then often leads to people committing crime. So that's, which is why we need to defund the police. I saw research that suggests that most, like most house break-ins and stuff like that are, are like upwards of 70% are as a result of desperation. Right. You know, it's it's, it's linked to poverty is what Yeah, absolutely. And like the reason that people commit many of the crimes that they commit is that they don't have money, which would give them access to many, many things that they need, right? Housing, food, other resources. Having police around doesn't stop that from happening. It doesn't, having police around doesn't stop people from being poor and needing money to live. I think part of the the conversation around defunding police is if we took that money and we put it toward preventative measures, yeah. how much money are we saving society? How much more just is that society? Yeah. Um, and so this this is where I thought the metaphor of this episode fell apart maybe a wee yeah. bit. The, the preventative measure is not policing. It's just capital punishment. Right. But the, the crimes that they're talking about are not really crimes against people or a disruption to the society. It's really arbitrary stuff like don't step in this garden. Yeah. Again, it's like crimes against property. Against property, which maybe that is part of the metaphor. I'm not really sure. But it's like no one owns the property. If we knew who owned it and if that was like – if there was like an overruler. But the society seems pretty egalitarian and everyone's needs yeah. seem met. I, it seems more of just like an experiment with dealing with the prime directive in this case. Yeah. So let's like – we haven't really talked about it until this point and this might be an yeah. opportunity. To but do. I would also just say one more thing about it is this idea that like capital punishment will deter people from committing crimes – you could commit a crime and get away with it, but you also could not because it depends on whether you commit the crime in a zone and you don't know whether you're in one of those zones at the time. So it's got this almost the idea of like Foucault's panopticon. Do you know that concept? I've heard, you know, I've heard of it and I think I looked at that in university, but it was a long so time the ago. Idea, you want to do a quick Yeah, overview? his idea is like 
if when so prisons shouldn't be like dungeons where everybody's in the dark and together and you can't see them. Instead, you'd have a panopticon and in a panopticon, you've got the the warden or whatever in the center and all the prisoners are like around a ring in cells that they they could be seen at any moment by the warden because the warden's like in a tower in the center and they can't tell whether the warden's looking at them or not. So then they will police their own behavior because they don't know whether they're being watched. Right. That's, so yeah. it's kind of it's kind of like that. It's like you will behave yourself because you don't know whether you're in an area where you're going to be punished. When I see conversations or debates right now about defunding police or changing resources away from police, it seems that the the main crux of the debate is really what fundamentally people believe about human nature. Yeah. So one side of it is like if there weren't police forces or the law or a panopticon-esque like structure in society, yeah. then people would run rampant and there would be anarchy. Like I see people typing this online. They're like, oh, there'd be anarchy without rule of law. But then the other side of that argument is like, well, no, like the the reason why people do break the law is not that there's something inherently like evil about human nature right. or that we're anarchic. It's just that people are like desperate and don't have their needs met. Yeah. I'm not saying that there aren't aberrations mm -hmm. within society mm -hmm. where there are like violent criminals and that's that's inherent to their nature. But to build an entire system of justice around those aberrations seems like a way to dupe the entire society into being in a panopticon. I would also say that it seems to work on Rubicon 3, but we kind of are in this sort of panopticon because you don't know when exactly you're being surveilled or if you commit a crime, yeah. you don't know whether you're going to get caught or not. And people still commit crime. Capital punishment doesn't stop people from committing crimes. If it did, then nobody would ever get killed. But people are are executed like all the time. There's an article that I pulled up in anticipation of this conversation. There is a man named Daniel Lewis Lee who is executed by the United States He's the first federal prisoner in 17 years to be executed by the U.S. Why is it that only right now, under this administration, and given this person's offenses were atrocious, but why is it that under this specific administration, has capital punishment turned at a, at a federal level? Right. Executions used to be public, like public hangings and stuff like that. And I think it, it says a lot more about rule of the state than it does safety of individual persons yeah. in the society. Yeah. That's my super unqualified answer to why capital punishment exists, because I think you're right. I don't think it is a deterrent. Theater of power rather than like actual power, theater of security over actual security. And I think Picard brings that up Absolutely, later on. Absolutely, yeah. No, I mean, I think this episode is in many ways meant to give viewers a chance to explore those topics. I don't think that it explores them as fully as I think an episode could. But it definitely provides the opportunity for this conversation that we are having right now. And we're, we've been talking about capital punishment, but how do we end up there? So what happens to Wesley? He is running with his new friends playing ball and he says, throw the ball ahead of me. The person throws the ball too far and he goes over this teeny tiny white fence and crashes into a little enclosure. These plants that are sort of being protected by it. Not, it's clearly not glass because it doesn't shatter. But the other kids are like, no, Wesley, don't. Inertia is too, too much for him. And he, he ends up falling into these flowers. Mediators show up and they are wearing just as little as the rest of the group, except their little pieces of fabric are gray. gray. Almost like a yeah, gray blue. Yeah. So those are the mediators. They're not cops, yep. they're not law enforcement. They're mediators. And right before this happens, we've just learned from... Leator and Tasha Yar and like, telling Worf and Riker that punishment for any crime, no matter what, if a crime takes place in the punishment zone, the punishment is death. Death. And they're already like readied with a syringe and everything. So they, they run up and Wesley's like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like, I, whatever. It's, it's fine. And he doesn't realize that he has done something wrong and they're mad at him. He thinks they're concerned with him, which is a fair thing to think, I think, when you fall down. He's expressing how their society would respond to someone falling over and being in in that situation. Yeah. It's not, he doesn't really care about the damage to property. The first thing he says isn't like, oh, I'm so sorry about the flowers. It's like, no, I'm okay. Like, he assumes that they're worried about his physical health. Is Yeah, totally fair assumption. But then he fully admits, because he doesn't realize it's a crime that he's admitting to, he admits to falling in these flowers. 
And the mediator's like, all right, well, we've got an admission. Was, we, we have a clear transgression. At this point, Worf and Riker and Yar have shown up. And he's like, do we have a witness? And one of the other kids is like, well, I was actually the one who threw the ball. So really, I should be the one in trouble, not him. And the guy's like, all right, you're a witness. So we've, that's all we need. So time for punishment. That young person probably recognizes that if he implicates himself, he might also die. Yeah, it looks like he's, uh, he's willing, still willing to, to do it. sacrifice himself for Wesley, but they're not interested in yeah. that. The, the mediators take out their syringe and Worf and Tasha, Worf and Yar and Riker are like, I don't think so. And they knock him down and get out their phasers. Interestingly, I guess luckily for the sake of the episode, this zone is no longer a punishment zone. It was when Wesley fell into the flower beds, but it's not anymore. So they are not going to be executed for taking out their phasers at the mediators and knocking them down. <laughs> but but they they would be if this place were still a punishment zone. The mediators are like, it was announced you came as friends. Is this how friends act? They think that they're the offended party, yeah, which is fascinating. They are so confused when they get the syringe from the mediators and they're looking at it and they're like, so this, you were going to poison him. And they were like, well, it would have been completely painless, but now look at him. He's afraid. They almost see it as like quick punishment as this quick execution as a a mercy, as opposed to like a long drawn out explanation of what's actually going to happen. Wesley's like, you were going to kill me. He's like, were the flowers that great? (laughs) Boy, they were planted over the course of a thousand years. (laughs) They've got contact with the ship again. The globe has stopped interacting with Data. Picard beams down and he's like, basically tell him like, we regret our system of justice is troubling you. Picard says that they don't execute criminals anymore. Humans, humans don't, yeah. But at the same time says like, we have this prime directive where we can't really interfere with your society. But he's also interested in interfering in their society (laughs) because... Then what he does is asks them about their god, uh, which probably is one of the biggest ways to interfere with someone's society. Well, at but, first he okay. doesn't know. He's just like, there's a thing circling above our planet. And they're like, oh, you mean god? And he's like, well, I'm going to take one of you back up with me just just to see. And at that point, I would say he is pretty seriously interfering in the society. Yeah. At what point does the, and they don't really say, I don't think in the series, but at what point is a captain's responsibility to the prime directive, like overridden by the responsibility of like keeping your crew safe? I guess he makes that decision, as we'll see. I think this episode kind of grapples with that, but sloppily. And it's something that will come up over and over again over the course of the series. The prime directive of Starfleet is not to interfere with pre-warp societies. They're explorers, but they don't interfere. Was the Prime Directive explored much in original Trek? They talk about it, but it's not, it's pretty loose. I mean, they always just say it's like non-interference with the development of other societies, but they don't like, there's, I don't think there's like an ABC as to how that actually looks or doesn't look. I think it's, it's much stronger in TNG. Like it's been, it's been maybe refined over the last few hundred years. I think that's actually also a reflection of our own society. Yeah, yeah. An awareness of how like our influence, especially around the like, colonization, has impacted the development of other societies. And I think we see that starting to get played out in the writing of TNG. This will change without going too much into the future. But right now, the prime directive doesn't mean that you don't have any contact with these pre-warp societies. They had no issue beaming down to just hang out on this planet, even though like, could you imagine if some alien ship just decided to beam down onto earth and was like oh yeah we just you got a nice planet here let's hang out let me we just want to play around and break some of your laws i'm guessing kind of similar to to code of honor that maybe these societies have already had contact with alien civilizations i I guess it's a little weird in this case because i think in later episodes i think it's fair to say the idea of non-interference is like we leave them alone yeah, or we, we survey them, yeah. but like covertly. We don't go right? down there and have shore leave on their planet. Yeah. which So I think they maybe had not fully figured out how the Prime Directive was going to work when they wrote this episode. Picard and Troy go back up to the ship with Rivan because Picard wants her to check out this god. He, he communicates with Crusher because she's been keeping an eye on Data and he doesn't say anything about... Wesley because he says he wants to talk to her about it in person but then it's a little weird that she gets the away team's report that says that Wesley is scheduled to be executed at sundown I you know he wanted to tell her in person 
either they should have delayed that report or he should have gotten there a little earlier because instead she's just like what's happening with my son yeah she's to read it a report oh yeah by the way yeah. wesley is and she's to like die. um excuse me picard what? are we gonna talk about this and he's like hang on just need to verify that this thing outside is god yeah he's like just a moment in a moment crusher i find in this episode it, it something about the way she's portrayed bugs me i i can't tell if it's like she's really upset and justifiably so but I, I feel like I should get I, – I, want, I wanted more anger from her. You can tell she's very upset, mm -hmm. but she's trying to remain professional to the situation and detached as a mother. Yeah. I thought Gates McFadden did actually a really good job of portraying that conflict mm -hmm. in the character in those scenes. I do like when she tells Data to shut up. He's babbling about motherhood. Because he's babbling on. But So we get to the same, I think the same quarters that maybe Jordy was in earlier where they get a view of the Edo robot machine thing, base, whatever, that's yeah. floating in orbit. But, oh, and before that as well, Rivan is, a, is that her name? Rivan? Yeah, Rivan or yeah, Rivan. Rivan. Yeah. She basically is able to intuit that the Enterprise has such power that they could probably take Wesley at will. Mm -hmm. Picard doesn't want to. He's not there to try to create a conflict or or that level of or that level of conflict, but is looking for like a peaceful solution. They bring her into the room and she identifies it as God. Yeah. Bows down before it. And as soon as it realizes that she's there, the base starts moving toward them, and Picard's like, beam her back. And Crusher says which I think is <laughs> paralleling her concern yeah. right now. And she's like, it seems the Edo God is protective of its children. And I, I don't fully get why Picard needed to do that. Like she was so distressed at seeing God. She was like shaking. Yeah. And, yes. I, I, and I, in the sort of conversation with Troy, she, the, the idea I think is that if this is in fact their God, then... Yes, they may theoretically have the power to just take Wesley and leave, but not only do they want to do it peacefully, they also can't be sure that this being will let them do that without hurting them. Crusher says to him at this point, she's finally starting to question his level of, of commitment to getting Wesley mm -hmm. back and says, you know, if he were your son, you'd be as frightened. And he says, I am. Yeah. And I think he's trying to show to her, like, I am as concerned about this. I'm also trying to think about the thousand people that live on the ship and mm -hmm. what jeopardy I might be putting them in and the society down below by arresting yeah. him. So it is a complicated situation for Picard. To his credit, this is jumping ahead a little bit, he's not going to allow this to turn into like an arithmetic problem. He says, I'm not going to. Yeah, I like that. I like that quote from him. Like data kind of brings that up later on and he... No, that's that's not how we're going to solve this. We're not going to say one person is okay as long as it saves right. many people, which is good, I think. And we get some insight into what the Edo is doing by jumping back to sickbay. Data has communicated with this being and they got done a sort of information exchange. So the being knows everything that Data knows and Data knows that the being is aware that the Edo worship it as a god and that it seems... It's very protective of the entire star system. So they kind of think maybe we shouldn't have dropped these colonists off on this other planet because it's clearly like taken that as a sign of like the kinds of things we do. And so it's worried we're going to interfere here. And big question is since it knows everything data knows, it knows about the prime directive. It therefore knows that if they were to try to bring Wesley back, that would be a violation of the prime directive. How would it interpret that. Yeah, and Data is saying, well, it, it's basically anticipating whether or not we are going to break our own rules, yeah. which is kind of like a discussion around the Prime Directive with Q in Encounter and mm -hmm. Farpoint. They have the same conversation. Are you willing to break your own rules to accomplish what you want to accomplish? Yeah. But Picard makes a decision. He says to Crusher, whatever the cost, I will not allow them to execute your son. Yeah. So he, he puts his foot down. He's made a decision. This is how it's going to go down. Going to get Wesley back. He goes back to the planet and Rivan is sort of now kneeling before him. She gives him back his communicator. Nice of her. But she's also kneeling. It's like, I, I hung on to this for yeah. <laughs> She says that he is a god because he shares the sky with god. With god, And yeah. he's like, no, I'm not. I'm very much not a god. He sort of lays out the issue for the Edo. He's like, I should not interfere because of the prime directive. Also, I... <laughs> don't want you to execute Wesley Crusher. How are we going to proceed basically from here? The mediators believe that breaking any rule is like the worst thing you can do. So they seem to believe that if 
Picard were to break the prime directive, he will be punished by God. Right, yeah. You should be punished. You should be killed if you break your own rule. And he's like, well, I mean, I'll, it'll be pretty bad. Starfleet takes the prime directive really seriously. And they're like, no, no, not by your people, by God. He says, that thought crossed my mind. Like, I thought I might actually be punished by your God because they had met their God yeah. in orbit and it didn't seem super friendly. This isn't like an abstract concept of in your afterlife or some sort of car. No, it's like this it's physical like, ship, yeah, right? It's there in orbit. You will be punished literally by this yeah. interdimensional ship. There's a cool part here that I think is, is important to Wesley's development as a character. They're basically talking about him or around mm-hmm. him, even though he's there. And he kind of interjects at one point, don't I get a say in this? And Picard's like, you're not involved in this discussion, well, and, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I'm sorry, sir, but it seems like yeah. I am. You know, and, and, he, st- and he stands up to Picard. To just back up a little bit, he doesn't say it, but I feel like what he was almost going to say is he's like, wait a minute. If if they don't execute me, is that going to endanger the whole ship? And it's almost as yeah. though he's like ready. He's he. It sounds to me like he's getting ready to say, well, then ex- let them execute me. Yeah, because Wesley's awesome. And he's he's trying to uh, to exercise those principles here and his own like his own self determination. Yeah. The transporter doesn't work. They try actually leaving with Wesley, and God has stopped them yeah. basically from leaving. Uh, God has prevented your escape. Picard goes on a, a discussion with God, just presuming that God can hear him, and he says there can be no justice as long as laws are absolute. And then the entity, the God, allows them to finally beam away. Yeah, it's a little bit unsatisfying. A little bit. <laughs> I like it because it's one of the first times we get to hear Picard do one of these kinds of talks. Yeah. It's not his... He's working up to his good talks. He's working up to it. He's working up to it. He has some really great talks and speeches and and he says a lot of really good things. This one <laughs> wasn't quite there. It's a little bit like, really? Is that all it took? Like, it doesn't feel like enough. That convinced God. Riker also says something like, oh, as, how, like, since when has justice been as simple as a rule book or something like that? I don't, I don't know what else they could have done. I kind of think they were in a bit of a... Maybe it's damage control at that point. Like the, God knows that Picard is spouting these ideas off and people are hearing them and maybe questioning. Maybe God just wants them to like, okay, okay, get, okay, get, get out, out of get here out, before out, you start out. saying more of this stuff. Stop saying these don't things say these and confusing things everybody. Yeah, that's actually, I hadn't thought of that. That's a good idea. You know, they go back to orbit and Picard addresses the, you know, entity god that's in orbit and says, hey, if this, by the way, if this is related to that other colony that we seeded in this star cluster, if you want, we will remove them. It just give us a signal. And it disappears. And I couldn't tell if that meant, yes, get rid of them. I'm satisfied. So I'll leave now. Or if like, no, don't worry about it. It's cool. It isn't clear. And and Picard acknowledges that it, it wasn't clear and says, I wish we could have learned more. And I wish we could have learned more. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I wish we could have learned more as well. Despite, I think, some of the concerns we had with like the writing and sort of the strength of the metaphor, I think up until this point, it's one of the meatier episodes. You and I both talked about the fact that some of the previous episodes, we kind of were struggling to come up with notes for. <laughs> but this one has a lot of stuff. Like there's there's a lot going on here. You could actually Yeah, there is. And I think like, the that idea the there can be no justice as long as laws are absolute i agree with that but i also think it's super complicated because the idea of law i think i watched legally blonde not too long ago and i i i think it's aristotle that reese witherspoon quotes in that movie um but the idea is that law is reason free from passion. So I think my my understanding of law is that it is supposed to be totally fair because it doesn't have bias. It doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have preconceived notions. It's rules and they apply to everyone. But law on its own doesn't exist, right? Law only exists as it is written by people and then interpreted and acted upon by people. And people do have biases and emotions and preconceived notions and agendas. When you say there can be no justice as long as laws are absolute, I mean, I would say actually, like in a lot of ways, there also can be no justice when laws aren't absolute because what ends up happening is that the people who are punished to the fullest extent of the law are people who are not considered 
valuable by society, right? People who are whose identities have been oppressed and marginalized by other people. I, I totally agree with you. And I think a lot of the confusion that I see around people online or like people in my life or in my family that I've been trying to have these conversations with lately, they see law working because it's applied along a society that is depicted in this episode that is egalitarian and where everyone is basically the same. Right. But that's not how society is, yeah. as you pointed out. There are people that are marginalized. Power is applied unevenly mm. across that society. It's applied unevenly depending on how you look, who you are, what your sexual orientation is, what your religion is, and to the protection of certain elements of that society. And so if society were even across the board, then I would say, yeah, I guess in that case, you could have more absolute laws, I guess. But that's that's not how it works. And so we need to understand why the bias exists in the application of those laws. The idea of law is one thing, but consequence or punishment is the other. This idea that your punishment, regardless of the crime, if you commit a crime in a punishment zone, your punishment is death. That's not a problem with the law. Like, okay, you have a law that you are not allowed to disrupt new plants or whatever these laws are. That's reasonable. Yeah, if they had an RJ model there, it would have been like, Wesley Crusher, you're deemed to replant these daffodils. Yeah. And he'd be like, and he, okay, he that's cool. I could do that. You know, he would have done that <laughs> so well. Yeah. He would have been like, Gladly. you are right. I messed it up. Yeah, and- I should have been more careful. I'm with Starfleet. Yeah. We fix what we mess up. And because it's Wesley, it would have been like, and I spliced these with the genes of other plants we had on board, and now they grow <laughs> 20% better. Apparently, in the original script, I guess, or an early yeah. version of the script, rather than it being like this one society, there were two societies on this planet, and one was right, oppressing right. the other. See, that makes way more yeah, sense. Yeah, so then the question of, that makes way more of sense. Yeah. the prime directive was, do we help these people? who are being oppressed. That level of complexity seems to make more sense to that conversation. I mean, it's also similar in some ways to Encounter at Farpoint, where you've got this the little jellyfish who's being enslaved by the, the bandy. It was a pretty big jellyfish. The massive jellyfish. You're right. The space massive jellyfish. Massive jellyfish. Space being, jelly. Being enslaved. And that was also a question of prime directive. Yeah. Do we have the right to liberate people? Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, to the disruption of this society. I have more respect for this episode. Yeah, now. yeah, there was a lot to talk about. Okay, so next episode is the, the battle. battle. So excited about next episode. We learn a little bit more about Picard's past, so that'll be going on next week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of With the First Link. If you liked what you heard, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or a podcast provider of your choice. Our cover art was created by Nathan Nunn, and you can find more of his work at nathannunn.ca. Our theme song is An Amazing Adventure by Flame Lion Studio. You can follow us on Instagram at firstlinkpod or send us an email at firstlinkpod at gmail.com to let us know if you thought that Picard took the right approach to saving Wesley in this episode. I'm Ruthie. And I'm Matthew. And remember, when traveling through space, stay off the grass.